Well, about a week ago, my son Colin, as I was putting him to bed, said to me, Dad, I think you should preach an epic Christmas sermon. <laughs> I, I didn't know what that meant, so I said, well, what does that mean exactly? He says, well, you know, sometimes you just talk about the story in the Bible about what happened with Jesus, but, you know, there's like a, a, there's a bigger story in the whole Bible. It's all about Jesus. That's what you mean by epic. Okay, very good. Well, we'll try to do that this morning. All right. I had actually planned to do that before you told me that, but uh, we will try to set the story of Jesus, as I often do, in a much larger context. We do naturally interpret the Christmas story in a Jewish context, and for very good reason. Jesus was a descendant of Israel's most famous king, King David. Matthew 1 traces Jesus' royal line. Jesus ministered in a Jewish context, deliberately raising important questions about the identity of the Jewish Messiah. Jesus frequently visited the traditional Jewish capital of Jerusalem. Jesus taught the Jewish scriptures and meticulously observed Jewish customs and feasts. And when he was finally crucified as a false Christ, a placard over his head read, King of the Jews. That placard revealed a severe misunderstanding about Jesus, and that's part of why Jesus was actually crucified. Jesus had not come merely as the king of the Jews. And the Jews had badly misinterpreted the mission of the Jewish Messiah to the broader world. Had the Jews read their own scriptures carefully, they would have discovered numerous clues all along the way that God's mission to redeem mankind through a coming king was much larger than just the Jews. So what I want to do is actually pick up on a few of those Old Testament clues today, and then we'll come into the New Testament to Matthew chapter 1 and 2. So can we begin all the way back, nearly at the beginning, in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3, we have a record of the fall of Adam and Eve. Our primordial parents attempt to hide themselves from the penetrating gaze of their Creator, but of course to no avail. When God confronts Adam, he blames Eve, and she in turn blames the serpent. And God then responds in verses 14 and 15, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring." He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. These verses, of course, foreshadow a long, bitter conflict between the woman, the serpent, and their offspring. They point to a coming champion who arises from the woman's seed to crush the head of the serpent. And the verses, of course, as we know, point to the Lord Jesus Christ. But at this point, I'm actually interested in the identity of the woman's offspring in a more general sense. Look at verse 20. 
It says the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. So the story begins not with merely the mother of the Jews, but the mother of all future human beings. The story will certainly come to involve all peoples, not merely one tribe. Now, of course, we know that Eve's seed was nearly extinguished when a wave of destruction rolled over the entire earth. But God saved, miraculously, the seed of the woman and the seed of the Messiah through one family in an ark. Let's turn now to Genesis chapter 9, where we read of Noah and his family who step off the ark into a post-apocalyptic world, and we are then given a second clue that God's mission to redeem mankind is much larger than Israel. In Genesis 9 and verse 1, God repeats a mandate that He had given originally back to Adam and Eve. That mandate was to fill all the earth with people. Verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God wants a whole planet full of people. And again in verse 7, And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, multiply in it, fill out the entire planet. God is concerned that that whole created sphere down there be full of people. So God proceeds to make a covenant with Noah. And not just with Noah, actually his, light, his offspring also. And even, ultimately, the animals. We read that beautiful covenant beginning with verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring. So here God has a covenant, not merely with the Jews, but all of Noah's descendants. In verse 10, here are the animals, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. Well, that includes us, does it not? Are we not part of that all future generations? So what's the sign? Verse 13, I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now think of that. Just as Noah's flood was global, so too was the Noahic covenant. In fact, the term earth occurs 10 times in Genesis 9, 1 through 17, and again in verse 19. God's covenant is with the entire creation, and it is ever. Lasting. 
Uh, friends, we are some 2,000 years at least before God made a covenant with a Jewish king concerning his descendants. And God has already made a covenant with all creation. Creation will endure for as long as God shall live. That's a massive clue that God's purposes are much larger than a single nation. Now, turn forward one chapter to chapter 10. And in chapter 10, we have a curious chapter in the Bible that is more than a list of strange names. I won't read the whole chapter, but let's read the first five verses. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphoth, and Togarmah. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Katim, and Doranim. Verse 5. From these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. Well, who are all these people? And why are they in your Bible? How about verses 16 through 18? And the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arbidites, the Zimmerites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. Who are all these people? Verse 32, these are the sons of Noah. these are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Again, who are all these people? And why are they in my Bible? Well, skip ahead now to Genesis chapter 36. In chapter 36, we're going to find another list of names. We all know, of course, the story of Jacob and Esau. Through Jacob's sons will come the twelve tribes of Israel. We expect God to give us a record of Jacob's children. That makes sense. But let's read a little bit of Genesis chapter 36. These are the generations of Esau. That is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Aholibama, the daughter of Anam, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, and the sister of Nebaioth. And Ada bore Esau, Eliphaz, Basemath bore Raul, and Aholibama bore Jerush, Jalem, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. In fact, this whole chapter is full of names. Look at verses 9 through 11. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau, Raul, the son of Basemath, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gadam, and Kenaz, and lots of other names we don't know how to pronounce. All right, lots and lots of names. What are all these people doing in our Bibles? Isn't it obvious that God is keeping track of more than just the Jews? That's the point. God is keeping track of more than just the Jews. So at this point, let's turn back to Genesis chapter 12. 
where we read of another covenant situated between these list of Gentile names. Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis 12, we have a record of the first of five appearances that God makes with a man named Abraham. Collectively, these appearances give us the background for what we call the Abrahamic covenant. But just how far-reaching is that covenant? Well, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And then you, look at this, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth? Yeah, like all those people whose names God has been recording, there's a reason He's keeping track of all these families. Because He intends to bless all the families of the earth. Listen to what else God told Abraham some 15 years later in Genesis chapter 15. And He brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And we all know that one of the provisions of the Abrahamic covenant involved Abraham's immediate descendants inhabiting the land of Canaan, the holy land, the promised land, Israel. But have you ever wondered how you're going to squeeze all those people that God has promised Abraham into that little tiny land? How's that going to happen? Well, listen to what Paul wrote in Romans 4 and verse 13. Paul said for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. Heir of the world? I thought it was Canaan. I thought it was the Holy Land. By the time we get to Paul, it's the whole world. Did you see that coming? Did you expect that? When we read the land promises together with these kinds of statements that God is going to bless all the families of the earth, well, obviously, His promise is going to expand exponentially to cover the entire planet. It's got to. The Abrahamic covenant actually includes the whole world, just like the Noahic covenant. God is concerned with the whole world. And that's why Jesus claimed the meek shall inherit Canaan. The meek shall inherit the earth. And indeed, when the story concludes, Abraham's children have inherited the whole new creation. That, of course, is where the whole story is going. And Abraham, by the way, as I have pointed out previously, was both a Jew and a Gentile. People say, well, he wasn't a Jew. People say he wasn't a Gentile. Actually, he was kind of both. He was a Jew and a Gentile. Skip ahead to Genesis 25. We naturally think of him as a Jew because he gave birth to Isaac and was the father of the Jewish people. But how many children did Abraham have who weren't actually Jews? Well, look at Genesis 25 and verse 1. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. 
She bore him, Zimron, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Ledushim, and Leumim. The sons of Medan were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. That's a lot of kids and grandkids. And don't forget, there was another son also named Ishmael. And God has not forgotten about Ishmael. Look at verse 12. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian Sarah's servant bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth, Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Cater, Abdeel, Adbeel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jader, Naphish, and Kedema. Again, that's a whole lot of Gentile names in our Bible surrounding these two great covenants, the Noahic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant. There's a lot of Gentiles in there. Clearly, God is paying attention not just to the Jews. He's paying attention to the nations. Now you say, well, what about the Mosaic covenant? With whom did God make the covenant at Sinai? Well, let's turn to Exodus chapter 12. And let me show you one more little clue that's easy to miss. It gets kind of buried in our hasty exodus from Egypt. Of course, we know the story. God sent Joseph to prepare the way. The Hebrew children went down into Egypt. And now they're going to escape. In the meantime, they had grown exponentially. Through ten mighty plagues, God delivers His people at the first Passover. And God splits apart a sea of water and leads His people to safety. God descends at Mount Sinai, enters into a covenant with these people that He has liberated from Egypt. He forges them into a nation. But wait a minute. Who are these people? Do you know? Well, look at Exodus 12 and verse 38. A mixed multitude also. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. Even in the Exodus, when God led His people to Mount Sinai, His intentions were broader than merely the rescue of the Hebrews. A mixed multitude also joins them. It's no wonder then that one of the major repeated themes in the law concerns how to integrate strangers, Gentiles, into the national covenant. If you're alert for that, you see it all the time. In fact, right here in Exodus 12, when God institutes the first Passover, this is the first great Jewish holiday, God commanded in verse 48, look at the text, right here at the beginning, if a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. And listen to what God said in Leviticus 19 and verse 34. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him 
you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh, your God. In other words, don't claim Yahweh as your God if you fail to love the Gentile stranger among you. The Mosaic Covenant, friends, never was strictly about ethnic Jews. God made provisions for any Gentile to enter into the covenant. And in fact, we have a whole book in the Old Testament that is devoted to the story of how an honorable Jewish man loved a Moabite widow into that national covenanted community. Boaz, of course, was the kinsman redeemer. And do you know where he was from? He was from Bethlehem. And he prefigures Christ, the bridegroom, who sets his love on a forsaken Gentile immigrant and calls her to be his bride. Boaz's covenant of love for a Gentile is divinely approved. And Ruth is raised from poverty to a place in the Messianic line. And there is, I think, an ironic twist to the fortune of the future Messiah who comes from her womb. As he is exiled from Bethlehem, Boaz's town, to live as a refugee in Gentile lands. Isn't that ironic? The book of Ruth then ends with another list of names connecting Ruth's son Obed to David. David himself, therefore, was born of Gentile blood. If the Jews of Jesus' day despised the Samaritans for racially mixing with Jews and Gentiles, what could they say for their most illustrious king? And what of David's son Solomon, born of Bathsheba, the former wife of Uriah the Hittite? Bathsheba herself was likely a Gentile, the wife of a Hittite mercenary who had come to fight in David's army. If that is the case, and David was already part Gentile, and Bathsheba was Gentile, do you realize that Israel's wealthiest and wisest king was more than half Gentile? Now, before we turn to the New Testament, would you consider one more clue that concerns that God's intentions were always larger than Israel? The truth, truth, the clue concerns a whole other book the book of Jonah. Let's turn to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. And of course, Jonah is a favorite children's story. What if the prophet gets swallowed by a great fish, sloshes around in his belly for three days, and gets vomited up on dry ground? The truth is, as prophetic qualifications go, Jonah is a disaster. Are those birds out there singing? <laughs> those birds singing their Christmas carols? I don't know. <laughs> okay, whatever it is, we will continue. <laughs> uh, if you think about Jonah, he's a total disaster, an unlikely choice to preach God's truth to the nations. He's, he's grumpy, he's a racist, he's disobedient, he's a suicidal prophet. His entire prophecy amounts to 18, I'm sorry, eight meager words, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. But those eight words are probably the shortest and most successful sermon ever preached. Ever think about Jonah's sermon? Short little sermon, everybody ends up repenting. Even the animals repent. 
The text tells us, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now friends, Jonah would have made a great Pharisee. He despised both Gentiles and Gentile conversions. But the book of Jonah ends with a very important question. You can imagine Jesus actually posing the same question to the Jews of His day. Look at verse 11 of Jonah chapter 4. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Well, don't you think God should care for 120,000 Gentiles and even their animals? If He is, in fact, their Creator? The question, of course, is rhetorical. Had Jonah understood the Noahic Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, and even King David's own lineage, he would have known that, yes, indeed, God cares for the Gentiles. It was there in the Scripture all along. The Old Testament, in fact, is full of clues that God has a much broader mission than merely to redeem Israel. He has a mission to redeem mankind. And so with that in place, let's come at long last to the New Testament, to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Jewish history venerated four great women, four matriarchs, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah, the mothers of the nation. But curiously, Matthew omits all four of them, but he includes four women. In verse 3, Tamar. In verse 5, Rahab. Also in verse 5, Ruth. And in verse 6, a reference to the wife of Uriah, who would have been Bathsheba. Now, of course, three of these have dubious reputations, but that's not my point today. Three of these women, and likely all four, if our hunch about Bathsheba is correct, are all Gentiles. Isn't that interesting? Matthew omits the four Jewish matriarchs, highly regarded in Jewish society, and he includes four Gentile women. And Matthew is not done emphasizing the Gentiles. Let's pick up the story of the birth of Jesus in chapter 2 and verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest at the place where the child was. Where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. 
And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Well, let's think about Matthew's overall purpose. Matthew, of course, is the book in our Bible that transitions us from the Old Testament to the New, from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, from the narrow stream of Judaism in the Old Testament to the ocean of Christianity in the New. And Matthew begins with a genealogy that is rooted in Abraham's line, but it concludes with a great commission to make disciples of all nations. So clearly, this is a transitional book from Judaism to the broader world. And right here, embedded in the introduction to a king, a king that the Jews will reject, Matthew foreshadows that Gentile worshipers will come and embrace him. That's why he includes the story of the Magi. Now, the account that we just read forms a polemical contrast in Matthew's introduction. Jesus is despised by the Jews. He's feared by Herod. There's nothing royal about his birth or the subsequent events that Matthew narrates. But for those who have eyes to see, the mysterious hand of God is drawing the Gentiles in from afar. There's something very curious happening here. And if you'll skip ahead for just a moment to Matthew chapter 8 and verse 10, let me show you something else. In Matthew 8, Jesus begins His healing ministry and He heals the servant of a Roman centurion who expresses incredible faith in the Jewish Messiah. And unlike the wise men from the east, the centurion comes from the west. He is Roman. And notice what Jesus says in verse 10. When Jesus heard this, speaking of the centurion's faith, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such. I copied and pasted that into my notes. Is that supposed to say such faith? Okay, I left the word out. Okay, <laughs> I always copy the text into my notes. I'm thinking, I left the word out there. Such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and from the west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Think of it, friends. Here are the Magi. They journey from the east. All right? And here is the centurion. He comes from the west. And they all find faith in this obscure man, in this mountain village in Israel. This is the Savior of the world. Now, back to Matthew 2, and let's observe a couple more elements. There is, in fact, a great deal of mystery in our text concerning both the identity of the wise men and the means by which they understood that Jesus was the king. Many believe them to be from Persia or from Babylon, perhaps further west or east, we don't know. But the point is that they were Gentiles. There are two things that are of particular interest. First, in verse 2, is the phrase, born king. Born king. This refers to someone who has a claim by virtue of his ancestry. The phrase is sometimes translated born to be king, but I think born king is actually more accurate. 
The wise men recognize him as king from the moment of his birth. They're not waiting for a coronation. This man has the right to rule now. He is a born king by virtue of his lineage. And their recognition is an ironic contrast with Herod, who was widely viewed as a usurper to the throne of Israel. Herod had actually come to the throne in 37 B.C. Herod was half Jew, half Idumean, and through political intrigue and manipulation, he received the throne from the Romans. And the question of his legitimacy just haunted Herod through his entire reign. There's always this question, are you even legitimate? In fact, Herod became so paranoid about contender to the throne that he begins murdering potential rivals, including all the Bethlehem infants. Just kill them all. But Jesus, unlike Herod, is a born king. He has a right to the throne by birth. And then secondly, notice the phrase in verse 2, the king of the Jews. This phrase is peculiar in Matthew. He uses it only twice. In chapter 2, it is spoken on the lips of Gentile wise men from the east. Gentiles coming and recognizing this king of the Jews, but the term will not show up again until Matthew chapter 27, where Jesus is rejected as, quote, king of the Jews. Let me read three verses. Matthew 27, 11, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. 29, And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! In verse 37, And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Isn't that interesting? Here are the Gentile wise men at the beginning. They recognize the King of the Jews, but Jesus now is crucified as King of the Jews. He is murdered in his own capital city. But don't be deceived by this. Even though his own reject him and secure his crucifixion at Roman hands, these Gentile wise men from afar pay homage to the born king. They understand who he is. And now in verses 3 through 6, Matthew is going to further exploit the great irony of the situation. Here we find the religious leaders who are supposed to be experts in the Old Testament text, and they are in a state of profound perplexity over the possibility that the Old Testament text might actually be true. That's the irony of the passage. In verse 3, Herod is deeply disturbed by this baby who has been born. Had he been a sincere devotee of Judaism, he would have rejoiced But the word troubled in verse 3 is perhaps too weak. It can mean in great turmoil or even terrified. He's terrified that a baby has been born. That's amazing. Here's this great king, this great builder, and he's terrified by a little baby. And Matthew in verse 3 is using a synecdoche with his phrase, all Jerusalem. The phrase seems to refer to the chief priests and the scribes in verse 4. And Matthew has many more references to the Jewish leaders. In fact, he has many more references than any other gospel writer. 
He really goes to great effort to point out the problem with these Jewish leaders. He includes some 25 references to the high priest and 22 references to the, to the scribes. He really goes after them in his book. And these leaders believe themselves to be the religious experts of the day. We got it all figured out. We understand the Old Testament. But ironically, they are troubled by the fact that their text might actually be true. That's the irony of the whole thing. Actually, Micah 5 and verse 2, cited in verse 6, this might actually come true. It's like a terrifying prospect to them. The Old Testament might be true. Micah 5 and verse 2 claims that a great leader would emerge from the provincial town of Bethlehem. That's Boaz's city. And that leader will come, and the religious leaders seem to be afraid of this. So certainly, Matthew is on the war path here. He has no time for religious leaders who claim to read their text but cannot actually believe what those texts say. And by the way, do we ever have trouble with this? Like, read the text and let it say what it says. Sometimes we're bothered by our own text. Would you just notice how forceful Matthew is? Look at the end of verse 5. For so it is written by the prophet. It's like he's just poking those Jews in the eye. Look, your prophets say it. Look at verse 15. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Verse 17, they was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Verse 23, so what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. Look at 3, verse 3, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. Well, clearly Matthew is just plundering those Jewish scriptures and he's pointing out that Jesus really is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. They're just too blind to see it. What Matthew's doing here is he's presenting us with a very humble Messiah whose line passes through prostitutes and sinners, whose birth appeared to be scandalous, a Messiah who actually has Gentile blood. But don't be surprised. It was there in the Scripture all along. And the Gentiles are the first characters in the New Testament to pay homage to a Jewish king. It's been there all along. And hence the title of my sermon, Gentiles Rejoice Over a Jewish King. Now in conclusion, let's note something wonderful about the attitude of the wise men toward Jesus. Look at verse 10. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. I find it fascinating that in verse 10, as the wise men draw increasingly close to the Christ child, their excitement builds. Exhilaration just rises in their hearts. That star guides them to the great king and they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. These wise men have this overflowing, effusive, joy-filled countenance when they come in to finally greet the king. Nothing in the world could have, it could have thrilled them so much as to meet this Jewish boy. When they see Jesus, their immediate response is to simply open their treasures and to lavish them on Christ. Joseph and Mary probably had never seen such wealth in all their lives. They were poor. They were humble people. And obviously this was a prepared act. They had come from afar. 
But before leaving home, they had deliberately gone through their treasures and brought out their most precious gifts to bestow upon this Jewish king. And when they saw Jesus, their involuntary response was to simply fall down and to worship him with great excitement. And I wonder, friends, is it possible that we view all this as some sort of emotional excess? Years ago, my wife and I were at a church, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. That's the church that marks a place where we believe that Jesus was crucified and also enshrines the empty tomb. We saw many people who came to that place and they would fall down on their knees and weep. And they would just lay out prostrate at the place where they believed the cross was sunk into the ground. You know, it can be your tendency to look at that and say, well, it's a bit of emotional excess. Pull yourself together. Really? Is it wrong to greet Christ with weeping and great tears of joy and thanksgiving? Is this all emotional excess? Might we be the ones that maybe don't get emotional enough about all this, perhaps? The point is, we dare not disparage emotion and worship. If someone saw us singing, would they be convinced that we were rejoicing exceedingly with great joy? We actually have something to sing about. Now, certainly there is a place for decorum in the church. I'm not calling for tambourines or dancing or anything like that this morning. I guess we could because it's in the Bible. We're not going to do that in church, all right? But, you know, there, there is a place for not wanting to draw undue attention to ourselves. I understand that. But actually, if, if you look at people's response to Christ in Scripture and music, you, what you find is they sing with great emotion and with great joy on their faces because God is an emotional being, I think sometimes we think of emotion as some sort of female vice. It's anything but. It is a human attribute because humans are made in the image of God. And we are made to be emotional. We reflect His emotional nature. I remember several years ago, sitting in a service, and uh, there were a couple of male vocalists who got up to sing, and they were so incredibly rigid. They wouldn't, like, move at all. And I thought to myself, why do they look so angry? Their countenance was just fallen. I thought, why, why is there just no expression in their faces? Now, I, 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 maybe I'm a hypocrite because my wife says my natural face just falls into a frown. So <laughs> she says, you just look grumpy all the time. Okay, well, I do, I guess. But anyways, I'm happy on the inside. <laughs> okay. It was a distraction, though, to watch these guys sing. I thought, well, put a smile on your face at least. Uh, my wife and I went to a little Christmas concert last night. And I was just looking around the faces. I was looking for those who were the most smiley. I wonder, who's the most smiley out there? And there was one young lady right in the middle, and she just, like, she just kept smiling the whole time. I know nothing about music. I can, you, can you smile when you sing? I don't know. Brother Andrew can. I know that. All right. Anyway, uh, my, my point is we, we can, in fact, greet the Lord with joy and thanksgiving. We can come on on Wednesday. We can sing Christmas carols. We can be very happy this time of year. Uh, we have the wise men as our example. Here are these wise men from the east, and they are coming to greet this great Jewish king. And their response to him, again, is great joy, enthusiasm, and emotion. This is God's message for us today. They rejoice exceedingly with great joy at the coming of the Christ into the world. And I have deliberately written the title so it's not clear. 
Gentiles rejoice over a Jewish king. Is that an indicative? I'm looking at Kelly Walt. Or is that an imperative? Which one is it? Is it indicative or an imperative? It's both, isn't it? I mean, that's what we just read about. It's an indicative. The Gentiles, am I getting this right? Okay, I'm looking at the English teacher. <laughs> the, Gentiles, the Gentiles came and recognized Christ, but it's also an imperative. It's also an imperative. Rejoice. Rejoice over a Jewish king. Shall we pray together? Father, we thank you so much for this time of year. We thank you for the coming of Christ into the world. We thank you, Lord, that we can sing with joy. We thank you, Lord, that we, of all people on the planet, Lord, know the reason for the season as we look around and we find men and women running around and hoarding presents and spending lots of money, and yet there's no joy in their hearts. There's no joy in their homes. They wouldn't even enter a church. Lord, I pray that our experience of Christmas will be very different, that we indeed will be full of joy and thanksgiving and gratitude for Christ truly is worthy of our greatest gifts, our gold, our frankincense, our myrrh. And we thank you, Lord, that Jesus has come, not just as a king for the Jews, but as a king for the Gentiles, a king for all people. We thank you, Lord, for the assurance that the Abrahamic covenant will be fulfilled, that all nations of the earth will be blessed in Christ. We thank you, Lord, that the meek shall inherit the earth. We thank you for the new creation to come. We thank you, Lord, that we can sing joy to the world because Christ has come and he is coming again. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Just one more very quick announcement. We uh, do have this offering open for Grandview, and we are running this for the end of the year. So let me encourage you, uh, if you haven't yet, and you want to consider giving to that project, you're more than welcome to. And uh, we're, we're seeing that building go up very quickly. They're hoping that's going to be able to be used uh, as early as this summer. And uh, again, we have a matching gift, not from our church, but somebody has given a match. And so any, any dollar that you give will be matched dollar for dollar. And uh, we're going to keep that offering open through the end of the year. Of course, if you come back in January and you have some extra money you want to give it, I'm sure they will take it. I'm sure they will take it. But I want to remind you of that and uh, hope that you can uh, participate in that. Brother Andrew, you want to come?